welcome. Go ahead and grab a seat when you get a chance, if you would. We, uh, hi, it's so good to see you. Labor Day weekend, people. Here we are. Here we are. Welcome. My name is Matt. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, one of the pastors here, and just so glad that you're with us for worship uh, together this morning. Uh, go ahead and open up a Bible to Exodus chapter 1, if you would. If you have a Bible, great. If you need one, there are some on the seats in front of you. Again, Exodus chapter 1, uh, fairly easy to find since it's only the second book of the Bible. So turn to the very beginning and you'll see it there. Uh, again, Exodus chapter 1. We're in week 2 now of this new series that we're doing in the fall and, and beyond, walking through the book of Exodus. So join me there and as uh, you find it, let's take a moment just to pray one more time as we prepare our hearts for, for the word. God, we thank you for the gift of another Sunday where we can gather to praise and worship you, to turn our hearts to you. And God, we just pray now for your help as we turn to your word. Um, we know that you speak to us through your word, that you've revealed yourself in your word. And so we pray that you would help us to understand what we read. Help us to see you clearly. God, would you remove distractions and barriers in our minds and in our hearts? And uh, yeah, help us to see clearly. And we pray, Jesus, that you'd be glorified here in our time together. And we come with uh, open hands, humble and ready to receive from you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, hey, if you know me, you know that I love sports. I probably talk about sports too much. Maybe you're saying, Pastor, we're tired of the sports sermon illustrations. And if so, I'm sorry, but here we go again, okay? I love watching sports, and I've realized that when you watch sports, and if you have a favorite team, you know this, when your favorite team starts to lose, it can be an emotionally jarring experience, okay? And I don't mean just lose in a close game, they're behind by a few points, but when your favorite team starts to lose big, I've realized there are one of two possible reactions that you might have. And the first is that you might react as an ever-hopeful optimist. Okay, your team starts losing, you say, they are going to come back. They are going to make a run, it's going to be close, I trust our coach, I trust our talent, they're going to turn this thing around, don't you dare turn the TV off, we're not leaving the stadium early, we are here till the end because it's going to turn around. Anybody in that camp? The ever-hopeful optimist, sports camp, okay, a couple people. Then, there's the second possible response, and that would be the, the doubter camp, where you say, our team's down, turn the TV off, it's done, let's put some Netflix on, I want some nachos, I don't even want to look anymore, there's no way we're coming back, it's just all downhill from here. Anybody in that doubter camp? Okay, I'm in the doubter camp when it comes to sports people, and I think it's because of my time growing up as a Sacramento Kings fan. And really, we just, we just never won anything. And so when it started to get, when it got bad, it just stayed bad. And that's just what it was. So I can relate to that. Maybe you can too. Now, I mentioned that. I mentioned that because I think when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to God's work in the world, sometimes it's easy for us to slip into the doubter category where we start to wonder when things look bad around us, will God keep his word. Will God be faithful to do what he said he would do? 
will God keep his promises? Especially when we look around and our lives maybe are a bit messy or we look out at the world and it's discouraging at the things we read about. We wonder, is God's word true? Will God keep his promises? That's exactly what the book of Exodus is going to speak to this morning. In Exodus chapter 1, we see a pretty dire situation and we see God's hand in it. Before we jump in, a little bit of context to prepare us for Exodus chapter 1. Again, we talked about this last week. Exodus is one chapter, one part of a bigger work, uh, not just the whole Bible, but it's a part of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, a foundational uh, chunk of the Old Testament that would help the people of Israel understand who they were, their identity, and who God was. So those first five books of the Bible were very foundational for the people of God. And so Exodus is the second book of those first five. And so it would be helpful to understand what came before it in the book of Genesis, the first book, so that we can understand a bit of what has happened up to this point. In the book of Genesis, we are introduced on page one of the Bible to the all-powerful, sovereign, creator God, the one true God, the eternal unchanging God who made all things from nothing. And we see, though, that God's good world fell into sin as Adam and Eve rebelled against him and disobeyed, and therefore their descendants and all of humanity fell away from God. But then God determines to redeem his world, to rescue his people. And we see that a key part of that story comes in Genesis chapter 12, where God calls Abram, later to be called Abraham, to be the father of a great nation. And God says, I will bless the world through you. And so it's through Abraham and his descendants that God will continue his rescue plan in the world to bless all people. And so we see that Abraham fathers Isaac, Isaac fathers Jacob, Jacob fathers Joseph and many other brothers. And Joseph, if you remember the end of Genesis, is sold into slavery. He finds himself in Egypt and yet through a series of miraculous events uh, comes to prominence and power in Egypt, a position of influence, uh, working with Pharaoh and he brings um, rescue in some form for his family and for surrounding peoples as there's a great famine in the land. And so this family of promise, this family that God chose to work in and through for the good of the world has found themselves down in Egypt. And that's where Exodus 1 picks up. And you see in verse 6, a bit of what we looked at last week, it says, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And so the promise from Genesis 12 is coming true. God is making the family of Abraham into a great nation. They are multiplying, increasing greatly. Look at just the repetition in verse 7. They're exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers over and over again. It's affirming God's doing everything he said he would do. Everything is going according to plan. But it would not 
stay smooth sailing for long. Right? We read in verse 8 last week, again, then a new king, it says, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they, put, they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. So a new king comes to power. We have a new Pharaoh in the story who didn't know Joseph. He didn't know Joseph's family. Remember, Joseph had a position of power, a position of influence, but now this new leader, this new Pharaoh, knows nothing of him, and times have changed. And this new king, we see in the text, is afraid. He's afraid of the people of God. Look at verse 9. It says, they're too numerous, essentially. They keep growing. And he's afraid that what? They are going to turn against him, turn against the people of Egypt. He's threatened by them. And so he does what has been done numerous times throughout history. He targets these ethnic minorities, right? Let's just call it what it is. He's targeting these ethnic minorities, people of Israel living in Egypt, foreigners in a strange land. And he stirs up fear amongst the majority group. They are a threat. They are a problem. We got to do something about them. He targets them and it leads to their mistreatment. It leads to cruelty against them. It's the evil work of an evil man. And we see here, I want you to notice this, Pharaoh is threatened by God's blessings. Notice that? The, the very sign and evidence of God fulfilling his promises to his people, their multiplication, they're, they're fruitful, they're multiplying, there's a lot of them in Israel. That is what threatens Pharaoh. And so he, he looks at this blessing, this faithfulness of God, and he interprets it as a threat personally. And as I saw that, I thought, wow, how much like Pharaoh we can be. I can be. Have you been there? Sometimes you see the way God is blessing someone else and it's interpreted as a threat. And rather than rejoicing with them and celebrating with them, it makes you a little bit bitter. They're doing great. They're thriving. What does that mean for me? Does that mean that all look not as good? That my voice won't be as important? That my significance, my worth will be called into question? They'll be seen as better than me? And I don't know if I like that. Right? Have you ever seen, you heard good news from someone or you see something on social media and your first gut reaction is kind of a, Ugh. like something good for someone else. And your gut reaction is a, uh, and we want to voice that. We're way too smart to say that out loud. We're way too smart to say that out loud. But in our hearts, sometimes there's discouragement when we see other people thriving, when we see God blessing people. I've, I've been there. Maybe I'm alone. I don't know. I've been there. When families you know are thriving, when God is bringing growth somewhere else, 
when God's using other people in bigger ways, when God's making disciples through other people, when other churches are growing more than our church is growing, when peers are flourishing at work, when God's multiplying other people's influence, sometimes we feel threatened. And we shouldn't, but we do. This is hard for pastors, too. Again, instead of feeling just the joy of the gospel moving forward, the joy of lives being changed, the joy of seeing other people blessed by God and thriving, there's fear. And when that happens, it's just a toxic, foolish, bitter thought. It's toxic. It's not of the Lord. The very thing that's meant to give hope to the world, God's hand blessing people selfishly becomes a point of tension and fear for us. And so what I want us to see is just that that is the heart of Pharaoh. That's the heart of Pharaoh. There's no place for that in the church. There's no place for that for the people of God. That is the heart of Pharaoh. And whenever we see that crop up in our hearts, we need to address it. We need to remind ourselves of the gospel, that our identity and our security comes from Christ, not our own achievement. Faith in Christ brings us justification, adoption into the family of God. We can rest with peace and security, knowing that our value is secure. We're loved by God in Christ. We have no one to impress, nothing to prove. We can serve God with joy. We can stop the comparison game. And again, I'm preaching this to myself. Preaching this to myself to remember the gospel. Sometimes what we do is, again, we let this fear, this fear of Pharaoh in Exodus 1 that he has, we let it fester in our hearts. But what Pharaoh does is he puts it into action, right? We see that in the text. Verse 11, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Pharaoh wants to be harsh to the people of God. He wants to subdue them. He wants to make their lives bitter. Look at the repetition in verse 13 and 14. Worked them ruthlessly, made their lives bitter with harsh labor, with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly, on and on. Pharaoh's oppressing them, taking them from flourishing to, to bitter lives of slavery. But it ends up actually getting worse because Pharaoh's plan, maybe you notice, doesn't work. Right? What does verse 12 say? It says, even though they're oppressed, they continue to flourish. Interesting. And so Pharaoh says, okay, I need a new plan. So he escalates the situation in verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Pharaoh says, I'm no longer going to indirectly keep your population in check. Now I'm going to systematically murder the Hebrew sons. So I wonder here, as things go from bad to worse, what about God's promise? 
Will God's word remain true? Will his people, to continue, will his people continue to flourish even when the, the strongest, the most powerful man in the world, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, stands directly against the work of God? When the pressure is turned up and it looks like your team is losing, how do you respond? And in the story, we have the curious insertion of the, the Hebrew midwives. You notice them? Mentioned by name, these women are, are charged with the task of murdering infants from Pharaoh. And we aren't told what the consequences would be if they disobey, but it wouldn't be much of a stretch to imagine that they would be severe consequences. And so these women are faced with a choice. Will they listen to Pharaoh and carry out this murderous task? Or will they do what they know is right and obey God? What will they do? Which raises the question, what would we do? Doesn't it? How would we respond in a situation like that? Now, I know what you might be thinking and saying, Pastor, that is rather extreme. How often do we find ourselves in a situation like this? We'd never be there. It isn't really helpful for us to ponder that sort of question. And it's true that most of us won't find ourselves in a life and death situation. Obey a direct command of Pharaoh and disobey God or die. Most of us wouldn't find ourselves there. However, my guess is that we all have faced situations where we are either directly told or subtly pressured to compromise and to do things the way of the world rather than the way of God. We've all found ourselves in situations where we're either directly told or subtly pressured to compromise. Maybe this takes place at work. Maybe this takes place at home. And this is important because how we live our lives now tells us a great deal about how we would respond in a situation like this with the Hebrew midwives. The choices we make now reflect the kinds of choices that we would make when the stakes are higher. And so the question for us is, are we prone to compromise today? In each of our lives, are we prone to compromise with our words? Will we gossip just a little bit? Because socially, it makes things a little bit easier with the circle of friends we're spending time with. Is it easy for us to maybe tear other people down, tell a joke at someone else's expense, get a cheap laugh from people? Because it's not that big of a deal. Do we keep our word when we say we're going to do something or not do something? Do we follow through? Are we people of integrity? Are we people of integrity in the workplace, or do we fudge the truth just a little bit? Because it's small, no one will notice, it's not that big of a deal. Do we have integrity with our witness, where we have opportunities to talk about Jesus, and we instead keep quiet? Small compromises, here or there. Do we have integrity with our money? Do we say, I can compromise a little bit, I don't have to give every month. Let's not get carried away some money last month to some people. I don't have to worry about that this month, right? I can splurge here a little bit, spend some money on myself, buy some new toys. Does God really want or need my money? 
He probably wanted me to be happy. We compromise with our time. I can be a little lazy here. Get to my work later here. Our responsibilities can wait. There are countless ways, friends, right, that we could compromise. And rather than walking in the way of the Lord, as he's told us in his word, we say, hmm, change it up a little bit. But Jesus told us, Jesus told us, whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. And so if we are willing to compromise in the small things, hinder the kingdom and God's work in and through us in the small things, how do we know that we wouldn't make similar choices when the stakes are high? And so this is the call to integrity today for each of us now. We see in the text how the midwives respond. Verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Jesus, incredible courage, an example of faithfulness by these women. They feared God, the text says, and they disobeyed Pharaoh. Sometimes we think that the fear of the Lord is a bad thing or an outdated thing or we don't like that term, but it's a good thing. It leads to life and wisdom. When we fear the Lord, when we say that his voice is what matters, we're going to honor him above all else. God is big and people are small. That should be our posture. The voice of the Lord is what matters. And that's what these women did. They listened to the Lord. They walked in his ways and said, come what may. Let Pharaoh do what Pharaoh will do. Those women are remembered for their heroism, and we even know their names. You notice that in the text? We know their names, Shipra and Pua. And notice the subtle message here. We don't even know Pharaoh's name, right? Moses didn't bother to write that in, so it wasn't that important. But for all of history, we know about Shipra and Pua. We know their names. They're remembered for their heroism, these women of God that God used powerfully to bring life. And so we want to recognize their example, applaud their example, by all means follow their example, be faithful to God, even when the pressure is turned up. You know, as Pharaoh calls them in, he doesn't like what he sees, right? Verse 18, then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the, ba- the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Just kind of a funny comment there. So Pharaoh brings them, hey, what, what's, what's going on? They tell him this interesting response. We're like, I don't know, the Hebrew women, just the babies come out really fast before we even get there. I don't know. They're just shooting them out. It's just, what, what do you want us to do? Which <laughs> is funny. It really is. Um, but we know that's not like entirely true because verse 17 says they're intentionally disobeying Pharaoh. So what they're saying, it can, again, it comes off like Pharaoh's getting duped. It's kind of a, the joke is on him. Because somehow it's believable enough that he lets the women live. And there's been talking throughout history, looking at this example. It's like, did, did they do the right thing? Like, they kind of lied. Should they have done that? Should they have said something different? Uh, should we really look to their example as, as a moral step? And, you know, big debate has gone on about that. But I will say, what, what does the text tell us about what they did? Well, when we see 
in the story how God responds or how events unfold, it tells us how we should take their action. And what does verse 20 say? It says, God was kind to the midwives. The people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So God blessed the midwives. God honored what they did. God was kind to them for their actions. And so let's, let's honor, let's appreciate these midwives, Shipra and Pua. But I want us to see, too, that the point of this text is bigger than that. Okay? It's bigger than that. We should look at their example and say, right on, women of God, well done. But what I don't want us to do is focus in so closely on the trees of the story that we miss the forest. And sometimes that's what we do. We approach the Bible and we kind of zoom in on these character stories and we say, okay, well, what like moral lesson can I take away from this? And we miss kind of the bigger picture that's going on in the text. And so we'll say, well, hey, look at Pharaoh. He was a bad dude, so don't be like Pharaoh. And these midwives were great moral examples, so let's be like them. And we stop there. Now, those lessons are true. Pharaoh was a bad guy, and we should not do the things Pharaoh was doing in this text. And again, the Hebrew women were courageous and bold, and we should, again, follow their example as well, of course. But there's, there's more going on in this text than just that. And what I want us to see from this text, the bigger point to the story comes by looking at what's repeated throughout the story. When we look at any text of Scripture, if something is repeated, it serves kind of like a highlighter to show us something's really important. So what's repeated throughout chapter 1? In verse 7, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Then verse 20, God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous, right? So over and over again, it's reaffirming that God is keeping his promise to this family. God's keeping his promises to his people. His plans and promises will never fail. Even though they are threatened, even though Pharaoh, king of Egypt, stands against him, his plans move forward and over and over again. Verse 7, verse 12, verse 20, the text is telling us, look, God's keeping his promises. God's plans will not fail. Even when the pressure is turned up, even when it looks like his team is losing, he's at work and will accomplish all that he sets out to accomplish. Again, look at verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So it appears that the more steps Pharaoh takes against the people of God, the more they flourish amidst suffering and God's plans for them advance. And friends, we see the same thing throughout church history. There have been seasons of persecution in times and places where the pressure is turned up for Christians or things get difficult and oftentimes those are seasons of great enrichment for the believers there and growth of the church. And it doesn't seem like the math would work out that way, but it does. 
And maybe you've experienced personally in your own life some of the darkest hours, some of the seasons of greatest struggle for you have also been times where you've sensed the presence of God the most. Where God has met you there in the trial. He didn't take it away, but he met you in the struggle. The great Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon wrote about this, growth through suffering. He says this, You shall find in any individual church that wherever evil men have conspired together in a storm of opposition has burst forth against the saints, the heart of the Lord has been moved with compassion. Be patient then, my brethren, amidst the persecutions or trials you may be called upon to bear, and be thankful that they are so often overruled for the growth of the church, the spread of the gospel, and the honor of Christ. So though threatened, God's plans and promises never fail. God is faithful even when Pharaoh, king of Egypt, or the, all the powers of our day seem to stand against God. He accomplishes his purposes. And so what does this mean for us today? We can look back to Exodus 1 and look in the text and see, okay, so God fulfilling his promises to the people of Israel meant they continued to multiply and be fruitful and grow more and more numerous. He's keeping his promise to bless and redeem the world through them. But what does this mean for us today? Because it could be possible to hear a message like this and look at a passage like this and say, well, okay, God's going to keep blessing us, and that means material possessions and ease of life and health and comfort. And if you've heard proponents of the prosperity gospel preach, that's exactly what it sounds like. God is going to make you happy, healthy, and wise. Just trust in him. That's not what the Bible assures us of. God does not promise an easy life to his followers. In fact, we see in the scriptures that if we are faithful to the Lord, it will be quite difficult. There will be trials, suffering, possibly persecution. So an easy life is not guaranteed. So what then are the promises of God? What can we be assured of today? Well, we can be assured of the presence of God. We can look into an uncertain future and know that God will be with his people. God will not abandon us. He will not forsake us. He will be near to us. We can be assured of the promise of the Holy Spirit, God dwelling within us. We can be empowered for mission and witness in the world. Acts 1.8 assures us of that. God's church will continue to advance. The gates of hell will not overcome the church. And we're promised that Jesus will return one day. Jesus will come back to set all things right, to right every wrong, to establish true justice once for all. So friends, we need to, again, cling to these promises, especially facing an uncertain future, both individually and for our world. We all know it's no secret that election season is coming upon us. Lord, help us. I'm not looking forward to next year. Let me just be honest. Not looking forward to it. Some of us get so worked up about 
well, if this person gets elected, it's going to mean this. And if this person doesn't get elected, this person, this is what's going to happen in our country. And we just are motivated by fear. We get bitter and harsh and angry with those who disagree, even with its brothers and sisters. The political process is important. We should be involved in it, of course. But let us not lead with fear. Let us not be a people that think that somehow the sovereignty of God is threatened by our elections. God will accomplish his purposes. God will do what he wants. He is driving all of history to his purposed end. It will not be threatened. And so we we can face the coming days with grace, with patience. We can sleep well tonight and in the coming nights knowing that God will accomplish his plans. God's work will be done in the world. And I want us to see, too, this is not just like a vague, God's going to, you know, take care of things out there sort of thing. Like, it is that. We can look at our world, at our country, whatever it might be, and say, hey, God's going to take care of things. We don't have to fear. But also, for us personally, in, in our lives, we can have hope and security because of the work of Christ. We can look to the cross and know that we are forgiven of our sins. We are restored through faith to a right relationship with God. We have the Spirit of God indwelling us. We're adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. And so we look to the cross and we see that Jesus' victory is secure. The work is finished. We can rest in him. We we studied 1 Peter as a church a few months ago. And 1 Peter chapter 1 reminds us of this living hope that we have, this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, right? Our future is secure. Our inheritance in Christ is steady. And this inheritance, it says, is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And so as the people of God, we are a future-oriented people, right? Founded on the work of Christ, present with the work of God now, but looking forward to the day when Jesus returns and the fullness of our salvation is seen and revealed. It might not always be easy, friends, but we can rest knowing that God will do it. And so, friends, let us lean in to the Lord in the days ahead, especially when things are uncertain, especially when fear crops up and doubt crops up in our hearts. Let us lean into the Lord. Let us return again and again to his word, be reminded of who he is and how he operates and what he has said he will do. And if you're here this morning and you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, you haven't taken hold of these promises that are for you in Christ, I pray that you would, that you would turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. He wants to offer this forgiveness and fullness of life to you. You see the last words of Exodus 1 end with Pharaoh kind of doubling down on his oppression because his plan's not working and so he goes to even more drastic measures that we'll talk about going forward, but we know how the story will end. God will rescue his people. God will lead them to freedom just as he has done for each of us in the person of Jesus.
We have a chance to now celebrate that truth by coming to the table together. We're going to come and take communion, which is an opportunity for believers to look to Jesus and remember his work on the cross for us, the, uh, the bread representing his body and the cup representing his blood. And so we can come forward as the music plays to one of the two stations up front and together look to Jesus, remember what he has done for us on the cross, celebrate the forgiveness of sins that we have in him, and remember that he's in control of all history. We practice an open table here, which means that even if, if you're visiting and you're not a regular here, if you've put your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we invite you to come forward and celebrate with us. Again, I'm going to pray and then come forward as you're ready. <clears throat> Jesus, we love you and we just recognize that you are our king and savior. You are our rescuer. You are our help in time of trouble. And we know, Lord, that life will not always be easy. There are uncertain days ahead, but we know that you are good. You are faithful. You have saved us. Our, our hope and our eternity is secure in you. So, Jesus, we remember you as we come to the table. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for forgiving us and giving us new life in you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>